Welcome to the Motor City Hoops Podcast, your home for all things Detroit Pistons and NBA. Thank you for choosing Motor City Hoops, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Welcome to episode 41 of the Motor City Hoops podcast. Before we get into the show, I want to thank Ben from Backseat GM Pod for the new intro that you guys just heard. I hope you guys like that. If you have not already, make sure you go back and listen to episodes 39 and 40 with Matt Derry and Laz Jackson, where we gave a recap, review, and analysis of the Pistons and NBA draft. But for today's episode, I'm joined by one of my favorite guests, CJ Marchesani, part of the Step In and Roll Call Sports. I'm excited to have CJ with us today as we get his thoughts on the Pistons draft, but also get a dive into the free agency move moves that have happened over the past few days. CJ, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. CJ is one of the best. So today we're going to talk some Pistons draft. We're going to then dive into some Pistons free agency news, and we're going to go around the NBA. And <laughs> There's a lot, guys, so we'll see how much we can get of that. But first, CJ, you're for me, you're one of the most progressive NBA guys out there. And I want to ask you about one of your newest metrics. And we'll talk about the spacing, uh, or sorry, the, the gravity. Gosh, dang, I'm blanking now. Gravity no, you got and it. spacing and gravity. Okay, spacing and gravity. Yeah, okay. Um, but your newest one is the conf- confidence index, and that had to do with draft players. So why don't you describe to our listeners what that is, how it works, and, and, and kind of why you wanted to come up with that? Sure. So that's a little bit of a different vein from the spacing and gravity stuff we talked about last time. I'm sure we'll talk about today. This is more of a subjective kind of grade of my own evaluation, right? I mean, coming from my point of view, I'm looking at 100, 200, however many guys every year. There's no way that you're going to be 100% confident in each and every evaluation that you have. And I think that a draft board, while helpful, leaves a little bit of that nuance out. And no matter how much film you watch or things like that, your your opinions can change a little bit. So the guy that did it for me that kind of sparked this this year was James Booknight. And I watched more film on Booknight than really almost any other prospect. But... I just didn't have a a great grasp on his game and his translation to the NBA. Now, you know, my not great grasp is still pretty good, but it's not to the level of the evaluation where I was at with somebody that like Franz Wagner, Josh Christopher, guys that I really dug into and talked about a ton. So I think it's really important to, to kind of disclose that information, right? Like I feel very, very, very confident about this and maybe slightly less confidence about this. So it's just a one through 10 grade on that I have on my big board that I kind of update through the year on where I'm at with my evaluation of the player. It doesn't really have anything to do with the player itself. No, that's all. I mean, I think that's really reflective. And that's why I appreciate you because I, 
I don't. I mean, that's not completely outside the box, but it it is in the terms of you're putting it out there for people to see. And I think that's just being completely upfront and truthful. I was thinking about this as I was driving to the school. I recorded my classroom, and I was thinking about the Kelly Olynyk breakdown I did just a few days ago. And I walked away from that breakdown feeling very good. Like I felt like I really got an idea of who Olynyk was last year, and felt like I was able to do a good job portraying that with my breakdowns. And if I'm being completely honest, I don't always feel that way. Like sometimes I. I'm not sure what to feel about a player. So I love that because I felt that in my own thing, not doing college players, but the NBA breakdowns I have done before. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's at, at the very least important, right? There, There's a bunch of different guys doing draft stuff and it's it's kind of easy to just read their work and take it as gospel, right? Whether it be mine or any of the other great, great draft people we have on there. But we're all seeing so many different people that, It only is common sense that we're going to feel various different ways about our opinions on everybody. If you're talking to an evaluator that is 100% sure about each and every prospect that they're talking about, they're either lying to you or probably aren't digging deep enough, right? Like you you expect guys to, "Mm, I'm not so sure about this guy, but I'm really sure about this guy. And I think just disclosing that up front will maybe be a helpful way to a, we're not all perfect and we don't all have an 100% certainty what's going to happen. But B, more of just like a, you know, we're, we're working on it. And you have that little bit of extra information when you're looking at my my, my ranking of, say, James Booknight, where you say, CJ's a little bit lower on James Booknight, but it's not because he hates him. You know, he's just not quite as sure on his evaluation as ter- as opposed to somebody with like, Franz Wagner for me, who I was super high on and really think I grasp what he is at the next level. And I'm high on him and also standing firmly behind it because I'm very confident in that one. So I think it's just important information to disclose. Absolutely. I love it. So let's let's dive into this and let's go to um, everybody's favorite piston right now. And what is your confidence in your scouting report on Cade Cunningham? Very confident. And part (laughs) of the reason I'm very confident in where I'm at on Cade is because of how many different contexts I've seen him in. We got to see him through Montverde at high school in the U19s for USA and then in Oklahoma City. And they were all very, very different contexts. The U19s and Montverde, for example, were very star-heavy teams, right? He was doing a lot of distributing and they weren't always playing competition that matched their level of play. But then at Oklahoma State, it was the complete opposite, right? as a matter of fact, you, he was surrounded by players that were worse than the guys he was playing against for the most part. So you got to see what he looks like carrying a team and fitting into a team on ball and off ball next to Scotty Barnes in high school. So I think the more contexts you can see a player in, the, the better you can feel about your evaluation in a guy. So uh, I'm going I'm to skip around the outline, so I'm sorry, CJ. This is probably breaking host code and, and bringing on a guest, so I'm throwing a curveball here. But I want to skip to the spacing and gravity metrics that you do because you kind of brought it up there with his team at Oklahoma State. And, and again, I always preface it this way, and I'm sorry that I'm being redundant, guys, but I don't like to bash players at, the, at any level, any level, college, NBA, whatever, because I know how much work it takes to get there. But you don't have to give the actual numbers, or maybe you can quickly, but... Can you give our our listeners a chance to understand kind of what Cade was working with at Oklahoma State in terms of your spacing and gravity metrics? Sure. So just quick primer for anybody who hasn't heard this before. Spacing is how well you space the floor. 
uh, gravity is how well when you have the ball you're bringing people in. So for Cade, Cade was an 87th percentile floor spacer and a 99th percentile gravity guy. So he spaces the floor for his teammates and he really, really brings people in when he has the ball as well as anybody else over in the Power Six uh, college basketball conferences. The issue is he didn't have very many high spacing guys to play with. He didn't play with another player that played over 300 minutes that was over the 63rd percentile in spacing. Oh, wow. And if you look at the top seven players in the Oklahoma State rotation, I'll I'll leave the names out, but the spacing grades of the next seven after Cade, or seven including Cade, are 38-25, 58-63-0-0. So there's only two guys that were even average and barely above average, and everybody else is very, very low. So Cade really didn't have much space to work with, which is why you often saw him shooting out of double teams and really driving into clogged paints because he didn't have that space to work with. Yeah, and so that's what I mean. So Pistons fans know we've been adding shooters, and we'll get to that when we talk about the second round picks and the free agent additions and all of that. You know, shooting was a struggle last year for the Pistons as a whole. But I would think even just the rules of the NBA are going to give more spacing to Cade Cunningham, and let alone whenever you put really good shooters around him. Like the the floor is going to open up so much for him. Absolutely, and I think that a big thing that was missing from his game. Part of what we were talking about, seeing these guys in different contexts. I think that was missing from his college game that really showed up in his pre-college film was his passing ability. And I think you're going to see the passing ability start to come back now that he's playing on an NBA-spaced floor and has time to like go through those progressions without being swarmed by three guys. I think you're going to start to get... Before he got to college, this is crazy to say, but before he got to college, the biggest question was, was he going to shoot? And he ended up being an absolute flamethrower for Oklahoma State. And a little bit of that was at the expense of the passing. But I think on this NBA floor, you're going to see the passing start to creep back into his game a little bit. Yeah, so it's so funny you bring that up because... I always knew Cade as a passer and this creator and, you know, and all of that, you know, get his teammates easy buckets and open shots. And I thought maybe his scoring was going undervalued. And then the more I looked into it and talked to people and followed it closer on Twitter, I'm like, I feel like people are the other way. They see the scoring in the 40% three-point shooting. They're valuing that. But now I think he's being undervalued as a passer, as a creator, as an offensive initiator. And like you just said, uh, I think it's really going to shine, hopefully starting Sunday night in Summer League. Yeah, and I think you're right. And part of it, part of the reason why his raw assist totals were down were A, he was getting swarmed all the time. And B, when he was hitting guys, they weren't really the best shooters in the world. So he did he did not look as good of a passer at Oklahoma State as he did at Montverde, which is completely fair, and that is a fair criticism on Cade Cunningham. But he has the mental wiring and the talent to be a really good passer in the NBA, and I expect that to develop as he gets more and more comfortable playing on the NBA floor, and even more importantly, he'll have time to build trust with his teammates. And if you watched a lot of Oklahoma State, it didn't look like Cade had that same trust in his teammates that he will in Detroit. 
Absolutely. And that's a, you bring up the mental wiring. So I get to bring up my favorite quote from the last week and a half or so. And that's when Troy Weaver said that compared his basketball IQ to Larry Bird, which I just think is one of the highest praise you can give a young player. So, you know, the basketball IQ there and he thinks the game the right way. Um, I want to ask you about something a little bit kind of off the court, just a little bit. Um, and, and I don't know if you do this as you evaluate a player, CJ, but as I listen to him talk, I find myself always being engaged. I find my, I've used the term a magnetism. Matt Derry was on here. He said he has cachet. He just has, seems to have a presence about him as a leader and a guy, not right away maybe, but as a face of a franchise. Is there anything you saw that as you watched him, maybe how he interacted with his teammates or went back into his past? I know there's been articles written by like James Edwards from The Athletic, but is that something you were able to notice or took from your scouting of him? I think that's part of the package. And and if you look back, his whole life, he has been the guy and the point guard, the one with the, the ball in his hands. And his whole on-court demeanor is very calm, very cool, very collected, and he delivers. He gets the job done. So it's hard not to be drawn to that kind of guy, where at every level you're successful and you're cool and you're comp- uh, accomplished. And I think that brings about kind of a quiet confidence that Kate has that he doesn't need to be the loudest or you know very demonstrative to show everybody else around him that he's the guy he has a natural way about doing that with his game and performing on the court I know it's a lot to put on a rookie, but it does. he does seem like he's one of those guys that's going to bring up the confidence in those guys around him like you're talking about. Like, he's like, oh, we have Cade Cunningham. Like, I experienced this in my own playing career. Our point guard um, was a similar, not a similar player, but just kind of had that same cachet. And I know for my own experience, I had more confidence on the floor because of the point guard that I played with, Derek Mercer. And so I just, even though he's a rookie, I'm interested to see if we see other guys' games uh, elevate not just because he makes the game easier for them like you know in terms of getting them open shots but just the the confidence of being on the floor with a Cade Cunningham yeah and and I hope so and I think that that would be great I, I really do think that when you are as cool and collected as he is it translates right a, a lot of questions about his wiring growing up have been does he have that killer instinct right it always happens when you have these jumbo guards that distribute the ball to others. Can he take over the game? Is he a winner? That kind of thing. And I think Cade went to Oklahoma State and showed, like, I can flip a switch. If we need buckets at the end of the game, I want to be that guy too. And I think he walks the line really well between confident and, like, cocky, where he never comes off as a bad person or he someone that you don't want to He never comes off as arrogant. Fight. Exactly. Never. But he knows in his heart that he's going to get it done because he's done it so many times before. And he keeps evolving his game at every step he gets to that I have a lot of confidence in the person that he is and his um, his personality translating to a locker room and bringing that confidence to the floor. Yeah, I mean, I just, again, I'm trying to temper my expectations because I can feel myself as we sit here and talk. And I hope, I know the listeners, I hope you guys are doing the same thing, getting excited, hearing what you're talking about and, you know, describing him. Um, This isn't stuff we've really, really dove into quite as much, but I have to remind myself, he is just going to be a rookie. So we may not see this stuff play out right away, but I hope we see it a little bit. 
Um, to put you on the spot just a little bit, CJ, is there a skill that, that Cade has? I know we talked about the passing. Is there something else, and it can be very, very specific or very broad, that you think is going to really translate well to the NBA that maybe people aren't talking enough about or um, we haven't seen as much yet? Maybe not that we haven't seen as much yet, but I think as far as the first skill to translate is going to be the shooting, which is crazy to say now from where we were a year ago, but he was one of the most ruthlessly efficient pull-up shooters that we have seen the last couple of years in college. And people aren't that good off the bounce by accident. That's not a fluke. It's nothing like that. And I think that while he's still adjusting to the NBA floor and learning the right reads and making the right passes and cutting down on the turnovers, I I think that there's a chance we're going to see him struggle to get to the rim a little bit early in his career because he's not a blow-by-you athletic. It relies on balance and strength and rhythm and throwing the defender off the rhythm. So I could see that taking a year or two to translate as he's kind of getting his bearings. But I think the floor spacing overall, and more specifically the pull-up shooting, is going to be something that really excites Detroit fans right away, because I don't know if they really have had that guy. I know Blake Griffin kind of had a facsimile of pull-up shooting one of his later years, but I think Cade is probably the best pull-up shooter at his size that Detroit has had in a long time, and I think that that's going to pop right away. Yeah, I mean, I I don't get too excited, because I understand how easy it is to overblow you know some guy just shooting in the gym on their own with no defense but there was a something tweeted out yesterday Tuesday August 3rd um, of him working on his pull-up game and the the only thing I really took from it was how fluid and smooth it looked I, I you know it's not about whether he makes it or not he should be making a ton of shots whenever there's nobody guarding him and all that but just like watching his feet and watching the rhythm and the flow and his one two step into it and all of that like it just looked really really good and so that that got me excited about his pull-up game Yeah, and you said smooth, and really you can just say smooth and translate that out over Cade's entire game, right? If there's a word to describe Cade Cunningham, it is smooth. He's easy at everything he does, and it doesn't even look like he's working that hard while he does it. That was another criticism he got a lot, like, is is he really putting it all on the line? But he's just so easy and smooth that he doesn't need to show you that, right? He just does it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. But hey, let, let's give some love to some of the, the other draft picks. Um, uh, let's go with the second round here. Isaiah Livers, Luca Garza, Baltza, Koprovica. I believe I'm saying that right now. Thank you, Woodward Sports, for tweeting that out where I think Isaiah Livers um, had a little PSA so everybody could learn how to say it correctly. But um, let's go through those guys. We're going to have enough time, I think, CJ. So let's just go through them. You know, just I don't want to say quick, but talk about them a little bit. Isaiah Livers, what's, uh, what's your scouting report say, report say and, and what's the translation to the NBA game? So first, let me put the disclaimer that this second round was really weird this year. There was a lot of um, a lot of rumors and whispers and verified stuff that came my way that guys were a lot only being offered two ways in the second round and turning down the two ways to chase an undrafted free agency. Or if they're going to get a two way, they're going to pick their team that drafts them. So I think that's really an important point to keep in mind as we're running through these second round guys that maybe they're not all values, but they're guys that want to be in Detroit. And Livers 
is big and he can shoot. And when you're his size and you can shoot the three at 40% on high volume like he can, it's going to get you a look. I'm, I'm a little bit curious to see how versatile his shooting is really going to be or if he's just a catch and shoot guy. And I think he's big enough to defend his position a little bit. He'll defend fours. He'll probably not be quick enough for threes. But he he's a kind of guy that you know very well what you have on him. He's going to shoot. He's going to be able to get minutes because he's going to be able to shoot and defend his position. And if there's anything else to unlock from there, you kind of see what he has. He, he's an older guy that doesn't have a lot of underlying like interesting things about him. But he is a really good shooter, and he can defend his position. And that's always going to earn you a look in the NBA. What about the two bigs? So before we move on to free agency, Luca Garza, Balsa, um, either of those guys uh, intrigue you a little bit more than the other? Um, probably Balsa. I-, I think Luca Garza was drafted to run the G League team. I, I don't think he'll make the team out of... Uh, out of camp I would be honestly has there been talk about him getting a two-way I'm not even sure if a two-way is a lock for him yeah and I know one of the two ways is already taken up so yeah I I could see I could absolutely see a world where livers agreed to the second two-way um pending however whatever happens in camp or something like that and Garza and Balsa are just um G League guys or camp invites there was a lot of that late in the second round but Garza was a monster college big that probably doesn't have the foot speed to play center in the NBA. He's not a defensive level prospect that can play center in the NBA. So what you do and what I think the Pistons will do is see if he can open up his offensive game enough that he's a perimeter guy that is shooting from the outside, taking advantage when he's down in the post and hoping that you can survive his minutes as a bench big. But it's a lot easier if he's an actual shooter than the Pistons are not going to run post touches for Luka Garza at any kind of volume. So if he wants to earn his spot on the team, I think he has to do it as a shooter. Sure. So that two-way, and this is why I wanted to check before I said it, but it does go to the undrafted free agent, Chris Smith. And so real quick, um, ACL tear for Chris Smith last year. The guy, I, I've just heard from people I've talked to that like he may have been a first-round prospect. So the, I, again, I try not to get, it's still an undrafted free agent. I try not to get overly excited, but maybe there's something to this kid you know, over two or three years. Uh, maybe. Wing bets are never a bad thing to take. I was a tad lower on Chris Smith even last year before he had that uh, season where he got hurt and had the down year. I think he's an interesting wing because he has a little bit of a shooting background. He has a good free throw percentage. He's very athletic and he can defend um, the wing, right? So there's always interest in those guys. And those are the guys on that you want to you want to cycle through a lot of them. And see which ones have it and see which ones don't. And there's a chance that um, Chris Smith hits. But I think he is a little more raw, maybe basketball skill-wise, than you would like a guy his age to be. But we'll see. He's a um, he's a two-way. He If you close your eyes and don't focus too hard on him, he has the outlines of a two-way wing. And two-way wings are the most valuable spots that you can pick up, really, with these minimum contracts. So he is a worthwhile gamble to see if he pays off for sure. 
Got you. Okay, let's move into free agency. Obviously, this is the big news over the last couple days. We're, of course, going to start with the Pistons free agency news. I want to just start with this. Um, I think this kind of came about with the Mason Plumlee trade, so we don't have to get into that, but just anybody who hasn't listened to the last couple episodes, um, we did trade Mason Plumlee, moved back 20 spots, um, and I think this is kind of why, uh, obviously, you know, without tampering, technically, we couldn't know we were going to sign Kelly Olynyk. But um, the Pistons signed Kelly Olynyk to a three-year, $37 million contract, third year as a team option. What was your initial thoughts? What do you think about Kelly Olynyk as a player? I love this when it came across um, the news feed because Kelly Olynyk is the perfect center to have around guys when you're trying to develop them and build with them, right? Cade Cunningham's life is so much easier when he's playing with a big that is not in the paint. He, he doesn't have to worry about those natural doubles that come off the center. He, he can use Kelly as a pick-and-pop partner, but really it makes all of his reads 10 times easier in his first and second season. So he can develop hitting the right passing reads and doing all of those things with a ton of space in the middle of the floor. I, I don't think it's a... I think it's weird to say that a two-year deal for a older center is a good rebuilding move. But I think that this is going to be really helpful for Killian and Cade to space the floor and give them room to make the mistakes and make the decisions that they need to on a NBA space floor. I really think Olenek was a, a really good pickup on not a bad contract for the development of those guys. Well, and I think what it is is we don't have that guy right now or maybe you think there's a younger version of that guy on the roster. But if you don't have one, you still want to see what it's going to look like. So you go get the veteran version of it while you go and find the younger version or the developing version if that guy is on the roster. And like you say, but at least they're starting to already, Hayes and Kate are already starting to, to work with it and know how it's utilized. And then you're ready to, to bring in the next guy when this contract is up. What I love too is I feel like it opens up the floor in so many ways. Because now when Mason Plumley was on the floor, he had to be involved in the ball screen. If you're going to run ball screen action, or else he was a liability off ball. You can take Kelly Olynyk, go stick him in the weak side corner. Um, and I highlighted this, guys. If, if you go check out Detroit Bad Boys, I, I, I released something, my Kelly Olynyk breakdown. Go check it out if you haven't. But you can go stick him in the weak side corner. Now you can run, you know, pick and roll with Jeremy Grant and Cade Cunningham if you want. Or I don't know what you would think about this, but shoot, use Cade Cunningham as the screener and see what a defense is going to react to it. So I just think it opens up so many things um, with Olynyk's ability to shoot the ball yeah agreed and it it gives them another look outside of Stewart where they're not always stuck with a paint clogging center they'll be able to work in both contexts I would love to see some inverted ball screens with Cade setting the screen and really this is I don't want to temper expectations for Detroit fans but I don't think that it would be shocking to anyone to say that this is not the year, right? Yeah. They they need to build a little bit more, but this is an awesome context to make some mistakes, try some things out, and see what works. And you can't do that if you are rotating centers that have to clog the paint. Yeah, no, that's I completely agree. I mean, I, I think the the conversation in Detroit is, are we going to compete for the play-in game, or are we still not there yet? I think that's the bigger conversation in Detroit. 
Um, and I, I think for the most part, people are being realistic. I personally think there's a chance, there's a world um, where Cade comes in as every bit of what he thinks he is and other guys take steps where we can find ourselves in a 9-10 play-in game. But I can see the world where we don't as well. But you, you, you're right. We're still in that place where you can tinker with things. I see games, not games. I see three, four minute stretches where Olenek and Stewart play on the floor together. I'm not saying it's going to work. I'm just saying I can see them trying it out again because Olenek can shoot the ball and space the floor. You can try those things. And like you said, this is the time to do that. Yeah, exactly. I really, I liked the signing when it first came across and um, I really like that they got that team option for the third year because two-year contract, $10 million a year, $11 million a year, it's like nothing. You know, they, it's it's not, it's a perfectly acceptable risk to take to give your guys the optimal place to develop. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said. It, it, it does not hamstring us moving forward whatsoever. It comes off when it needs to come off, when Jeremy Grant's contract is up and whenever we're going to start thinking about extending some of these rookies. So let's move on to a couple of the other free agents. Um, so Corey Joseph essentially got, I don't know what the right term, I'm sure I'm not going to use the right term, but cut um, be, to save some money. So we made he had a $2 million guarantee so we saved $10 million, and then we brought him back on a two-year $10 million deal. What do you think about that? Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Corey Joseph, um, but just in terms of a veteran point guard being around the Pistons organization. And he played well for Detroit last year. He really did in his time in Detroit. No, absolutely. I, I, I love what Detroit is doing, and I think this follows the same threads as the Olenek signing. This gives you an option. A, you just need a third guard, right? He's a very helpful third guard. Like you said, he's a good basketball player still. But B, if Killian or Cade falter on the ball, you you have a veteran guy that can step in and play with them. A, show them the ropes off the floor. But more importantly, if either one of them are not ready for this um, and are actually faltering, kind of like Killian did early, not that we expect that from Cade, but if Killian maybe doesn't have that bounce back, you still need another guy that can handle the ball. So to have a veteran that you know is keeping the good developmental context in play for your young guys is very important. Yeah, so one thing, real quick back to Kelly Olenek, another thing was, um, guys, his defense isn't as bad as I think what you would just think right off the bat. I'm not saying he's a positive defender by any means, but he's very much a neutral defender. Now, he doesn't bring a lot of rim protection or any, I don't know if he brings any rim protection, but he's a very high basketball IQ. He's going to make good rotations, and he's going to be a neutral defender. Yes, he'll get exposed in some one-on-one situations. I just wanted to throw that in real quick. Um, but yeah, He's at least ahead. better than Luca Garza. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, okay, Trey Lyles. This one has honestly spurned more conversation on Pistons Twitter and the people I talk to than maybe the uh, than anything that's happened um, with Pistons free agency so far. Some people are think he's going to come in, he's going to play the backup four, and that spells the end for Sekou, which Sekou fans, I wouldn't say I'm a Sekou fan, but I, I want to see Sekou get another chance this year playing consistent minutes for 82 games. What do you? What are your thoughts on Trey Lyles? Is this a depth signing? Do you think he's a better player than that? What do you see in his game? No, I think this is not just depth. I, I, th- I mean, I do think this is just depth. I don't think he is really any threat to Sekou. He's maybe another guy that can play the position if he falters again this year and they decide to move on from him. But maybe he's a little bit of a backup plan. But anybody that you're bringing in two years for $5 million is just, 
you know, he's a guy that can eat minutes if one of these guys got hurt. He's he's a pretty uninspiring NBA player that I don't think is an actual threat to anybody on this roster. He's more of a known entity. And you know you'll get solid minute-eating time out of him if you need to. I I don't think he... If he's a threat to Sekou... It says more about Sekou than it does live. Okay, so you said so I was on Locked On Pistons with Koo the other day, and that's exactly what Koo said. He goes, if Trey Lyles comes in and takes Sekou's spots, then that or spot, then that means Sekou, you know, didn't develop this offseason the way we thought after a really good what I feel like was a very good um, final thirty games of the season relative to Sekou and what we had seen before that last year. So that's kind of where I am. I see it more as a depth thing. And I almost want to say an insurance if, okay, Sekou does take a step back. He doesn't progress like we thought. At least we have Trey Lyles, like you said, to go in and eat some minutes um, whenever we can't make other rotations work. So um, it, it just was interesting that people, you know, like I say, it became such a talking point with Pistons fans. Let's talk about a couple of the guys that were released. So Tyler Cook, who had a non-guaranteed contract, you know, a guy that people kind of liked last year, showed some explosion. Um, and then Servetus also, which we take a $1.5 million dead cap hit with um, releasing Servetus, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know how much how familiar with you are with either of those two guys, but any thoughts on those two players? Um, not really. Mostly I would say that the cap hit is – a very very small deal especially because it's just for this year um i don't think either one of those guys are really needle movers maybe um servetus is at least cool you know <laughs> yeah that, that, that's the thing with servetus he can shoot the ball and so you know it was it was fun there was a world where it was fun to pretend like servetus was going to be a good nba player I, I found myself doing that in the season review but it really was just fun right it was cool yeah, he, I don't think that anybody should be losing sleep about either of the two of them. Yeah, and that's what you say. 1.5, I think essentially what happened was they needed a roster spot, you know, so you have to eat the 1.5. It does sound like, I saw somewhere, it sounds like he's going to be on the Summer League team, though, which I think is really interesting, um, the dynamic of that. But yeah. Well, um, that's the perfect place for fun, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, so three restricted free agents all have been extended their qualifying offers for this team. Hami, Frank Jackson, Saban Lee. We'll start with Saban Lee because literally, guys, right before uh, CJ and I started recording, the news broke that Saban Lee had been signed to a three-year contract with the Pistons, so he's staying in town. Um, What do you think about for Saban Lee? I don't know how much you know about him as a player. Um, Obviously, not a lot of minutes. We just talked about Corey Joseph returning. Did you like this move? You see it as a a nice long-term play? Yeah, and I'm mostly happy for Saban Lee because he came in on a two-way and really proved that he belonged in the NBA, right? So I think it's awesome from a a personal standpoint just to have this guy be getting money now um, because he earned it as a player. I think it's another helpful reason that Kelly Olenek is here because Lee sharing minutes with Sadiq, or I'm sorry, with um, uh, Stewart or with Plumlee previously last year is kind of difficult from an offensive spacing point of view but if you can go five out and have everybody on the floor be relative shooters it makes it a pretty decent context for Saban Lee to just be his bowling ball self and get downhill and make things happen and I think that he will have some um, some notable minutes on this team which is pretty important for a guy 
like scrapping and clawing to stay in the NBA to have that opportunity. And I think that he definitely will. Yeah, I mean, he's really good when he gets into the lane. You know, the biggest question with him is, is the, is the jump shot going to come to at least be, you know, respectable, I guess, you know, where teams respect it. Um, so, but you, you have to like the energy he plays with, the juice he plays with is what I like to say And when he gets to the lane. Um, so I checked Twitter real fast just to see if we had seen any reports about Frank Jackson or Hami, and we don't right now. Hopefully they, I mean, hopefully they do come out because I want those guys to come out, but I don't want them to come out before the rec- people get to listen. But so at time of recording, Frank Jackson, Hami um, just still have been extended the qualifying offers. Let's start with Frank Jackson because this is a guy I'm really high on. I'm interested to see if you're high on Frank Jackson whatsoever um, or maybe I'm, you know, maybe la- the end of last year was fool's gold where he did show, um, you know, an ability to shoot the ball above 40% from three. And, and what I thought was an ability to come in off the bench and bring some some scoring punch. Yeah, I've actually long been a Frank Jackson fan. He was a he was a favorite of a few of my draft metrics that I run every year, the year he was coming out. And he's over seven threes a game, seven three point attempts a game on over forty percent from three, which is I think huge for his projection. And I hope he gets minutes this year. Uh, Corey Joseph might be blocking a little bit of that, but you never know what happens over the course of an NBA roster. But I'm going to be watching a lot of Pistons games anyway because of Killian and Cade. And really, just talking with you, it's really uh, made me appreciate the team. You know, I'm a big Jeremy Grant fan. But I love Frank Jackson. So if he could stay in Detroit, it would make things a lot easier for me. So guys, I've tweeted it out. I said at the beginning of the podcast, CJ is one of my favorite guests. And I promise I I didn't even know he was a huge Frank Jackson fan until right at that moment. Like he easily could have said, no, Frank, it was a fluke. It was fool's gold. So I promise I didn't set that one up. But I'm juiced to hear that because I love Frank Jackson. I do... I mean, like, I don't think he's going to be like Jordan. You know, the easy thing is like, oh, is he the next Jordan Clarkson? I don't think he's the next Jordan Clarkson, but I see a world where he can average 10 to 12 points a game if he's shooting 40% from three. And that's what you need. You need a guy like that. I know he doesn't bring anything else to the table, but scoring is valuable. And I see a world where he plays, you know, if you stagger Killian and Cade, you know, he's playing off ball one of those guys with the second unit. Yeah, I mean, obviously all things in perspective. Nobody thinks that Frank Jackson's going to be taking this team by storm and pushing for starter minutes. But I do think that he is going to be a helpful player on the bench somewhere in the NBA. And for Detroit that has its right, his rights, I think that they should want it to be here. I, um, I was a fan of his coming out, and he didn't get off to the greatest start of his NBA career, but he's a better shooter than he shot in his first two years. And I think a little bit of that came through last year. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about confidence with Kate earlier. Maybe he finally found that. And then once you get that, you know, lots of times you can harness it and keep it. So let's move to the final one. Um, one of my favorite players on the roster, a guy I'm also super high on. So Hamadou Diallo, uh, probably the one guy that's going to get some action from another team in the league. James Edwards III, who I had on a, a couple weeks ago now, said he had heard that um, there was at least one other team in the association that was interested. Not a lot of money left, but mid-level exceptions are left. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Hamadou Diallo? Do you think he's going to get a, an offer from another team? Could you see that? And what, what would your price tag be if you were the Pistons? Um, I think I'm a little bit lower on Diallo than most people are. Uh, that being said, he shot 39% from three last year on... I mean, low volume, but at least decent volume. If Diallo shoots 39% from three most years, 
he is a very helpful NBA player. That being said, he did it on under 500 minutes, and I am relatively low on his shot. I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that gets guarded on the perimeter, and I think it, it makes it a lot harder to play guys that are not primary ball handlers or centers that can't shoot. Uh, I think it's becoming more and more difficult to play, and I think Diallo is a guy, not that I would let walk for free, but I certainly wouldn't be signing up to give him any sort of um, term on his deal. I, I, I am, I'm lower on him than a lot of my NBA friends, mostly because I don't really buy that he has very much shooting equity, if any at all. So I'll just put you on the spot then. The over, let's say, what's the, $10 million, let's say that's the breaking point. Are you, are you, is there, where is your breaking point? Is it somewhere around 10? Is it lower than that? 10, like per year? Yeah. I would not give Diallo $10 million per year. You're not even going close to that. No, no. I, I could see bringing him back on like a, a two for 12 deal okay. to see what he has, two for 14, get a team option in there or something. But if, if he's really going to command $10, 12000000 million a year, I, I think I think that would be a uh, more harm than it's worth contract to lock yourself into that kind of money for a guy that I think has a possibility to just be detrimental on the basketball floor if the shot regresses all the way back. Um, it, it could not. And if he, sh- if he shoots, he has a lot of other awesome basketball skills that he brings to the table that make him a really interesting prospect. But I think a lot of that needs to be unlocked by first answering, does he shoot? And I'm not necessarily convinced that he does. Okay. Well, I, and that, the, the reason I initially said 10 is that's roughly what the mid-level exception is. So if another team offered him the mid-level, their mid-level, you would pass. You would go ahead and let Hami go. Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. So I wanted, I do want to get around the NBA, but I want it. So I feel like I'm on an Island here and this is, it makes me very uncomfortable, but I, I like to bring it up because I, I do feel like I've seen it. I think Hami does have some offensive initiator in his game, going back to watching film at the beginning of the year with Oklahoma city, even watching him pull down a rebound. And, and I'm not saying he's Kate or Killian, but I do think I know he's not like a true point guard, but I think he can come down. Like he can play, he can you can set him a ball screen, he can take the ball off the, off the boards like I said and go in transition. Do you see that at all? Like are, are we completely in different worlds with that? No, I have seen him have some some interesting on-ball stuff. You definitely watch the Pistons more than I do, obviously. If if that is a path for him, it's one worth exploring. Um, I'm not sure how good of a creator for others he is out of that. You know, that would be interesting. Obviously, he had more of that in Oklahoma City yeah, than he had he in aver- Detroit. He averaged four assists in Oklahoma City. That's kind of what me, made me think of it to start. We didn't see it quite as much in Detroit. Yeah, if he can, if he can tap into that and they want to give him those reps to work that out, I would, I would love to have a season to try cool things. Like basically all year, I want to see where I'm at with all of these guys. That being said, if the price tag is, I don't know, three years, 30 million for me to make that bet to try to test that out, I'm not sure that that's a price I'd be willing to pay. But if they can get him back on a valuable contract, that's definitely a path that they should explore. And I think that's why so I'm so high on him is because I see that in his game. And obviously, I have no clue. I have no connections whatsoever to know if anybody in the Detroit Pistons organization sees that in his game. But I would be, I want to see it. I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get to the first month of the season and we'll see that a little bit from Hami. Um, 
but that makes sense. I understand what you're saying that while it would be fun and it's the right time, as we talked about earlier in the episode, to try out those quote unquote cool things um, at certain price tags, that it's no longer cool. It's like it better it better work um, type of thing. So, all right, well, let's move into around the NBA. I, we talked about this before, like it, it was just craziness over the last three days. Um, I had about a page of notes of all the signings and everything that went on. We're obviously not going to get to all of it, guys. So I'm going to start us off with the Chicago Bulls, and then we'll just progress from there, see where it takes us. Lonzo sign and trade, um, DeRozan sign and trade. They sign Alex Caruso. What did you think about the Chicago Bulls move? Uh, even going back to Vucevic trade, but the trade deadline during the season. I, I think if the ultimate goal is to win a championship, right, then obviously I don't think that the Bulls are moving in that direction. Um, I like DeRozan. I don't even mind the contract he got that much. It stinks to have to give away picks and Thad. Um, I'm cool with the Lonzo deal. Really, I don't have a big issue with anything that they did this offseason. That being said, it's nice to see a team just you know like they want to be good they want to be a playoff team they want to have fun basketball in Chicago there have been so many years of terrible basketball in Chicago and if their goal is get to the playoffs and be that five six seed and enjoy Chicago basketball for two or three years then I can't knock anything that they're doing and I don't even necessarily think that they're wrong for doing so but if their ultimate goal is contend to championships I I think they probably got farther away from that despite the fact that they got better because they they really handicapped a lot of their flexibility and future assets and don't really have anybody locked in that is a best player on a championship team or even a second best player on a championship team. They have a couple third best players on the championship team, but that's not necessarily going to get you over the hump in the East in the next three years. But also, they're going to be fun and interesting to watch. And I think there's something to be said for that. So that's what I was going to say. I mean, don't you think a lot of this is predicated on whether Zach Levine becomes that guy? Like, if Zach Levine... So you obviously don't see Zach Levine, right? I mean, nobody does right now. But do you not see a path where Zach Levine turns into a player that is at least number two player on a championship team, if not number one? Like, I really like Zach Levine's game. He's actually a guy... uh, me and Matt Issa um, picked a handful of guys to review just around the NBA, and he's one that we picked. And I was really impressed with this game. Uh, again, I'm not saying he's a number one or number two on a championship team, but you don't see a, a scenario playing out where maybe he could be? Um, well, he's only, what, 25, 26? He absolutely could make that development. And his pull-up shooting is nightmarish for other teams. We talked about this on the Spacing and Gravity pod. He was one of those guys up there with Steph and Dame that – spaces the floor and does it himself like he's a very impressive player but I I ran through this on Twitter a little bit and I was thinking about the Bucks and if you replace Chris Middleton with Zach Levine are the Bucks still champions and I think that Levine is that same level of tough shot maker and I, I really appreciate what he can do there but he doesn't really bring anywhere near the level of defense that Middleton does and he his assist totals have ticked up over his career but not really to the point where he's an active playmaker. He just has the ball in his hands a lot and can make some pick and roll reads. He's not that big time distributor for other players. So his he just more his archetype is a little bit limiting to raising his ceiling to especially that first guy. 
I, I think that in his um, in his realm of possibilities, or even what he is now, is a low end two guy, but a high end three guy, a low end two guy. But the Bulls really have shrunk their path to get the top end one guy, let alone the low end one guy, high end two guy. I don't really see the path to doing that because that DeRozan contract, while fine, is not going to be a positive asset for people down the road. And Vucevic is not going to have as big of a return, even that he did for Orlando down the line. So I just don't really see, barring one of my favorites from last year, Pat Williams, turning into an absolute world destroyer. I don't see their path to uh, the higher ceiling, even if I think that they're going to be a good team for the next couple of years. Yeah, I agree. I think they're going to be good, but they're hard because I like Lonzo Ball and I like what he's turned his career into, you know, um, a a good shooter. I like DeMar DeRozan and there's, you know, he, he averaged like, I think seven assists last year. I think that's something a lot of people don't know about DeRozan's game. I like Pat Williams a lot. He, he looks really good. I obviously like Zach Levine, but I, I tend to agree with you. I may be a little higher than you, but I tend to agree with you. There's probably not a championship roster and unless, like you say, Williams or Levine just really take another step, or Lonzo was really being held down in New Orleans, you know, playing behind Zion and Brandon Ingram, it's hard to see that path to an actual championship contender. Um, let's stay in the East. A, a team I'm interested to see if you think they're a championship contender now. The Miami Heat, very active. Uh, Kyle Lowry sign and trade. They lose Drogic and Precious Achua. Uh, PJ Tucker surprisingly leaves Milwaukee, goes to Miami. Oladipo stays. Jimmy Butler and Duncan Robinson get extensions. What do you think about the Miami Heat? Um, I don't. I don't think that they are a top two team in the East. I think I would still very handily have the Bucks and the Nets over them. I think they're closer to the Sixers range. Um, Joel Embiid would be the best player in any playoff series. They're again. Um, pending bubble Jimmy coming back they're a little low on that high-end talent Um, not quite to the Bulls spot and Bam still has steps to take but I can't see them contending with the Bucks or the Nets but do they have a chance at winning the championship in a way that the Bulls don't I think absolutely and they're definitely making win now moves I'm not necessarily in on Oladipo being a real big impact player at any point for over the rest of his career uh, PJ Tucker's fine. Losing Dragic is lower key an issue because he's pretty good, but Kyle Lowry will pick up a lot of that. Um, I think that they're probably the favorite to be the three seed until we know what's going to happen with the Ben Simmons saga. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily going to be a favorite to come out of the East anytime soon. For sure. Um, so you mentioned Ben Simmons, and then we're going to move to the West. Um, what what do you think is going to happen with Ben Simmons, CJ? I think he's probably going to end up coming back, at least for the beginning of the season. Um, mostly because I'm not sure what the market is for him. Basically, I don't see any way Philly trades him unless it makes their current team better without sacrificing the future. Because he's at his absolute bottom um, value-wise. So really pending a Bradley Beal trade or a Damian Lillard trade that both seem increasingly unlikely as the offseason wraps up. I don't think that um, the Sixers are going to be content to move him for a lesser package of smaller guys. And they proved that this can work in the regular season on the way to their one seed last year. 
So I don't think they'll be necessarily be in a rush to trade him, but uh, we'll we'll see if this makes it past the trade deadline. I don't think this trade will ever happen, but I still am going to stick to my guns, and I think the Blazers would have to probably put in a little bit more, but I still think Ben Simmons for C.J. McCollum. I still like that for both teams. I think C.J. gives the Sixers, or uh, yeah, the Sixers something they need, and I like Ben Simmons' fit with Damian Lillard. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I'm just going to stick to that one. That's the one that makes the most sense to me. Maybe it's not equal value. I don't know. Well, it's it's probably it's definitely not. Um, but that I, I like that trade. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely not. CJ McCollum was like kind of bad this year for, for his for his uh, standards, and he's going to be on the wrong side of thirty by the time any trade gets made on a rough contract. I just I don't know what Portland could add to that that would make me interested if I'm Philly and that, really at all. And I always do that with CJ McCollum and, and I laugh because I actually coached against CJ. So he's from the same conference that I played in. And I always like for some reason maybe it's because I want to feel like I'm still young. I always think he's younger than what he is, you know, and so I think he's thirty. Um, so, you know, it definitely doesn't make as much sense as probably what I always think it does. Um I, I think more than anything, I like Ben Simmons fit there in Portland playing off Damian Lillard. And so then I try to make it work by sending CJ to Philly. And um, as you outlined, that doesn't work. I, I lied. I want to stay with one team in the East real quick. A team that I kind of think is interesting is the Washington Wizards. They pulled off the sign and trade for Dinwiddie. They got Kuzma. They keep Bill. Um Thomas Bryant's coming off an injury. I really like Thomas Gafford. Sorry, Daniel Gafford. Um any intrigue with what the Wizards are doing? Not like next year, but, you know, a little bit there or no? Um, you know, I'm not not really. I'm not a huge Dinwiddie guy. I love Bradley Beal. He's one of the best, obviously, players in the league. I, I'm not a huge fan of really any of the guys they have going in their young core. They have a bunch of interesting players, but nobody that I think is like a step up and change the direction of the franchise kind of guy. And I don't think that they're significantly better than they are last year, even with their depth adds. I think they're probably competing for a seventh, eighth seed or a play-in uh, this year. Okay. That's it. I just... I think it's a collection of guys. Like I say, I'm a huge Daniel Gafford guy for whatever reason. He's just, you know, I watched a playoff game or into the regular something and um, just really enjoyed his game. I like Spencer Dinwiddie. I, I kind of have a soft spot for guys with ACL injuries. And so, I, I, you know, I hope he comes back and plays really well. So I was just curious if you kind of liked, um, you know, had any intrigue whatsoever to some of the stuff that they had done so um, no, i think they're i think they're pulling together a cool collection of depth guys sure, and, sure. and they have players that i like i just don't necessarily know if bradley beal can drag that team any higher than like a perennial seventh eighth seed contender fair enough i mean i'm i'm interested to see if kyle kuzma plays a lot better outside of lebron james shadow and i'm not i'm not blaming lebron james and by no means but i think i, I think it's you can see that some guys would struggle playing with somebody as great as LeBron James with that pressure in that shadow. And I'm interested to see if Kyle Kuzma is one of those guys. Yeah, it'll absolutely be interesting to see. So let's do move to the West now. Um, Phoenix Suns, I want to start there because uh, while nothing splashy necessarily, I mean, I guess four for 120 for Chris Paul is pretty splashy, but um, they bring back Chris Paul, they bring back campaign, um, they bring in JaVel McGee. So uh, essentially being able to kind of run it back there in Phoenix, 
Um, do you think that was, I don't know if they had a lot of flexibility to do much else. Were you surprised that Chris Paul, Chris Paul opted out and stayed? Um, do you like JaVel McGee? I, I realize, you know, not the sexiest guy, but that hole at the five spot off the bench was something that was highlighted during the, the finals. Yeah, I like what they did. I think they didn't really have any other choice. That being said, that Chris Paul contract is going to be a monstrosity when he's 39 and has two and 60 left. Um, but they needed to they needed to pay those years for what they're going after now, I guess. Um, they didn't really have any method to replace him, which I think was the bigger issue. I really like the campaign deal. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember that coming in and thinking that it was a, a decent amount lower than I expected he'd get on the open market. And JaVale McGee is a solid... He's turned himself 19. from... Three for yeah, 19. three for 19, which I thought was really, really good for campaign, especially because earlier in the show we were talking about Ham Diallo getting $10 million a year. Sure, yeah, that's a great point. So I really liked that deal for Payne, uh, for the Suns, for Payne anyway. And McGee has turned himself in from the uh, shacting a fool guy to a really sturdy vet presence on championship contenders. CJ, so I he's like what not they that did. bad, right? Like, I mean, I know it's he's an easy guy to make fun of because the shack. Like, I feel like he can bring you quality basketball for what fifteen to eighteen minutes a night, twenty minutes a night, maybe if you had to. Yeah, he he has a little bit of aesthetic bias because he looks so goofy when he's trying to play basketball, but he's not actually bad at it. He just looks funny while doing it, which which I think is an, not even to be mean. I think that I would rather look funny and be a good basketball player than look good and be terrible. Oh, so. ab- absolutely. I mean, that's what... And and I think he fits, you know, I guess whenever I look at a team like them that's competing for a championship or they hope to be, I like the fact that their second unit big is... Uh, similar, a poor version, obviously, of their starting unit big. You know, like I like that. Like he he's going to bring a lot of the same things, the lob threat, block shots, rebound. Obviously, DeAndre Ayton's a much better player and more skilled. I understand that. But I like that there's some similarities to how they're going to play the game. Um, so that way they can, you know, be in and out for each other um, easily. Yeah, no, I agree. I like McGee in that role. And I think uh, Phoenix is a good place for him to play it. The one thing I would look out for that makes me nervous is the next two years, right? The first two will be fine, but what is this team going to look like when it's play when it's paying Chris Paul thirty million dollars and Devin Booker is approaching his prime and DeAndre Ayton is approaching his prime? I, I I'm not sure how you build around him or build around them without maybe having to like get rid of Chris Paul but they had to reward him for what he did and they had to bring him back if they wanted any sort of chance uh, next year and more importantly just to show um, Booker and Aiton that they're serious about this and Bridges who is one of my favorite players in the league and is going to take another leap next year yeah Michael Bridges is a big time player another one of those Villanova guys um, draft Villanova guys so um, I do want to say I was listening to the Ryan Rosillo podcast um, this afternoon and I believe he said so if I'm wrong somebody tweet at me or let me know but maybe the fourth year on the Paul contract wasn't guaranteed uh, that would that would make me feel uh, so I, I, very I, much better. About I, I want to say that he, I, I was 
packing for Vegas, so I may have missed it, but I, I, I feel like he said the fourth year wasn't guaranteed, and that, so it kind of essentially was a three-year, $90 million contract. Don't, don't quote me on it, but I think that's what I heard. Um, maybe one of the listeners can tweet at me again and, and let me know for sure. But like you said, that makes you feel a little bit better, right, if that's not a guaranteed fourth year? I am looking at it now, and it looks like four years, $120 million is $15 million partially guaranteed in the third year and a team option in the fourth year. So that's a so, really, so that's yeah. really, it's only two that's and a half. That's very different. Yeah, yeah. So, so that makes you, that has to make you feel a lot better. I mean, like you said, two years, you're good with it. That third year now, even if he completely falls off a cliff, no pun intended, um, then you're still only 15 million dead money if you just have, to, if he's just so bad or, you know, at the end of his career where you have to cut him. It's backloaded too, so it's thirty-three million in year four, which I think we can all safely guarantee he's not going to be making, and they're only paying him uh, roughly twenty-seven million for year one and twenty-nine million for year two. Um, I, I think that then in that case, that's an excellent contract. And scratch from the record everything I said for the last five minutes. <laughs> no, you're, you're all good. Um, so one last thing before I let you go. And, and for anybody listening, I, I, the Knicks, I feel like we're one of the biggest teams in free agency, guys. I have Chris LeBron from the Off the Ball Network and podcast coming on in about a week. So I'm going to save all the Knicks conversation for that, just in case anybody was wondering. I know most of you are Pistons fans, but um, hopefully you stay around for the NBA uh talk and so if you were wondering why we didn't touch on the Knicks that's why but I want to go to the Lakers they trade for Russ they sign 17 other dudes to minimum contracts Wayne Ellington Trevor Ariza Wayne Ellington former Piston Trevor Ariza Dwight Howard Bazemore Mello Monk Kendrick Nunn I mean what do you think about what the Lakers have done this offseason yeah well the Russ trade on draft night was very interesting And then they ended up getting a full draft class despite not having a pick. Because like we talked about earlier, both of those guys, Ayayi and Reeves, um, were turning down draft slots to get to the Lakers. Uh, One of them turned down the Pistons, actually, to get to the Lakers. Wait, so, so hold, hold, hold on, because I, I, you brought this up earlier, and I didn't know if we'd have time, but and I think this will be interesting to the listeners. So just to clarify, what you're saying is like the Pistons, let's say at 52, may have called Ayayi and said, hey, we want to pick you, and he essentially said no. That way he would have the choice of teams he could go to. It, essentially, yes. They, they called up and said, hey, we want you on a two-way. Like, didn't offer a roster spot, just a two-way. And they said, no, um, we have something set up with the Lakers, obviously, and we feel more comfortable about that. So don't pick us. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I, that just, that, 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 that's a whole dynamic that I guess I kind of was aware of, but, you know, wasn't fully aware of. So, um, and sorry, I interrupted you, but so, so go no, ahead. you're fine. So they ended up getting two really interesting rookies that both would have been drafted and they didn't even have a pick. I'm a little bit less inspired by all of the minimum guys they brought in. I, I like Monk. Um, I, and that's I think the that, least talked about one. Yeah, I really like Monk. I think there's a decent chance that like two of uh, Ariza and Bazemore and Ellington, like one or two of them will probably be okay. I think Ariza's legs are probably shot. But I, I the good part about where they're at and all the money that they can print in L.A., is that they can just cycle through these minimum guys until they find the ones that stick. They can count on a little a little bit on the kids to provide some minutes in the regular season. 
and really they should just be holding open auditions for the two, or let's say, because Gasol will probably play a little bit at center when AD's resting. There's probably four slots available for playoffs besides Russ, AD, um, LeBron, and Gasol of guys that can shoot and defend. And I think there's just an open open competition throughout the whole season for those two spots or four spots. I think THT making $10 million a year is probably going to have the inside track to one of them. And I think Malik Monk is the best of the bunch with an inside track to the other. But outside of that, they're, they're just going to be using the regular season as a tryout for those last two spots. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not the biggest Lakers fan around here, but I do hope Wayne Ellington goes and, and shoots the lights out. I, I'm a big Wayne Ellington fan. He had a stretch um, last year with the Pistons where he was, I mean, he was incredible. And, um, you know, it, it was really fun to watch. It was really fun shooting to break down. That's what I did in college was shoot. So I always, you know, really appreciate it. So I do hope he, he's able to find a role out there in LA. That was, he was actually a guy I thought they might trade for at the deadline last year, um, you know, try to trade for him from Detroit. Uh, real quick before I let you go, um, last thing, what do you just think in general about the fit between with Russ in L.A. with LeBron and A.D.? Do you think it's going to be a little bit clunky? Um, we, I, I know we just kind of outlined the floor spacing issue, but do you think they're going to figure it out? It's going to work in the regular season but become an issue in the postseason? What are your thoughts? So we talked about the spacing and gravity a bunch of times through this. The two top floor spacers besides LeBron on the Lakers last year were KCP and Kyle Kuzma. They are both gone now. I think it's absolutely going to be clunky, but I think it's a really interesting bet that you can space a floor with being dynamic instead of shooting. I don't actually know if it's going to work, but if you help off Russ, he cuts to the basket, and him with a burst of speed through the middle is dangerous. Same with LeBron. If you stay off him, he's going to make you pay. So... It's a bet that you can't ignore these guys because of the star power. I would still ignore Russ and let him step into open 18-footers all day. But if they can knock him out of that habit and get him to the rim, I I don't think I don't think it's as dire as it's made out to be from a floor spacing point of view. But it, that all um, hinges on Anthony Davis playing center when it counts because if they try to put in a uh, like Marcus All or uh, any sort of center there as well it I think it crosses the line from interesting this could work to completely unmanageable yeah that's what, so one of the things I heard was like this is probably going to have AD or, or AD had to have signed off on playing the five more with this and I'm all for that I I, I hope he makes that sacrifice um I know he doesn't want to do it. I guess I can understand why, but I think that's what's best for them. And I do think that increases the chances that it that it works better, obviously, with him playing a lot of minutes at the five. Either way, it's going to be interesting. The NBA in general, the, the last few days, the last week has been incredible. Um, all sorts of turnover and excitement. Summer League coming up. So it's exciting time for guys like us doing NBA content. CJ, thank you. Um, I appreciate it so much. We'll definitely have you back on if you will come. I, I enjoyed doing this so much. Um, I want to give you a chance to plug your content. Where can everybody find you and everything you're putting out? Uh, Yeah, and you know I'll come back on whenever. But if you're looking for me, you can find my work usually at the Stepien, even though I've been swamped and not writing that much. Um, My timeline always has a bunch of my stuff on it at CJ Marchesani. And as always, you should check out Roll Call and the rest of the writers at Roll Call because we have some new writers coming on and some draft stuff and some league stuff and a ton of awesome content coming out 
that I would love for you all to check out. Yeah, you guys need to go check this out. CJ is one of the most progressive guys. I enjoy just the interaction in general, but all the content he puts out. As always, I want to thank you guys, the listeners. The support for Motor City Hoops right now is incredible. It's in a place I'm honestly not sure I ever thought it would get to, and it means so much to me. You guys tune in, listen to me and my guests talk about the Detroit Pistons and the NBA. I look at the numbers, I look at the reviews and the rating, and it's humbling, but it's very much appreciated. I hope each of you knows that. With that said, be on the lookout next Monday as I will have on Omari Sankofa from the Detroit Free Press to continue to talk about the offseason and we will recap game one from the Summer League where he and I will both be in attendance. Thank you again and talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Motor City Hoops podcast. Please give us a rating, drop a review, and subscribe. For more content, including video breakdowns, make sure you follow us at Motor City Hoops on Twitter. I hope you join us next episode. Until then, be safe and be well.